You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Bootrap moves from financial crime to cyber espionage. There may have been as many as three distinct U.S. cyber operations against Iran late last month. The U.S. legislative and executive branches continue to try to sort out constitutional issues surrounding cyber conflict. The U.S. intelligence community tells Congress that there are active threats to upcoming elections. One city's cyber woes will be expressed in water bills. President of the University of West Florida joins us to tell us how her institution is adapting to meet the workforce needs for cybersecurity professionals. And WannaCry may ride again if you don't patch. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 12, 2019. Bootrap, the threat group previously known for criminal raids on Russia's financial sector, has moved on to cyber espionage, targeting organizations in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. ESET says Bootrap has recently been exploiting a local Windows privilege escalation vulnerability, CVE 2019-1132, against its victims. Bleeping Computer reads the move from theft to espionage, which may have been in progress for some time, as an instance of the growing interpenetration of criminal gangs and intelligence services in many parts of the world. That interpenetration may involve leaks and false flag operations. As ESET's timeline indicates, Bootrap's back door was first noticed operating against Russian businesses in April of 2014. In the fall of 2015, it was used against Russian financial institutions, and shortly thereafter, the first intrusions into unspecified government networks were observed. The group's source code leaked in February of 2016, and now it's appearing in espionage operations. Lawfare takes a look at U.S. cyber operations mounted as a response to Iranian attacks on shipping in the Gulf region and, of course, Iran's shootdown of a U.S. global Hawk drone. They conclude that perhaps three distinct actions took place. Here are the operations that have been reported. First, there was apparently an attack against the command and control system of missile units. Second, there were allegedly attacks against the networks of an intelligence organization closely linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard. And third, there are said to have been attacks directed against the networks of Kataib Hezbollah, a paramilitary organization linked to Iran's government. Lawfare notes that U.S. Cyber Command has issued no statements on the matter and seems, as the journal put it, quote, 
content to wait out the news cycle without correcting the record. Quote. We note the vagueness of the target descriptions that have appeared in the media. Computer systems used to control rocket and missile launches could mean any number of things, for example. A digital command network, a fire direction computer, a voice-over-IP phone a battery commander might use to get instructions from higher-ups. The device a launcher section chief uses to receive email. All of these are some combination of them. We tend to imagine these operations as being similar to hacks conducted against other enterprises, and perhaps such vagueness from Cyber Command's point of view is a feature, not a bug. The operation displays the sort of strategic ambiguity that can be valuable in deterring an adversary. You might want to let the adversary know that you have the capability of disrupting their operation, but you'd probably want to leave them guessing about the exact cards you held. But strategic ambiguity is one thing. Constitutional ambiguity is quite another. The U.S. executive and legislative branches are still sorting out, with the kind of check-and-balance acrimony customary in such matters, exactly what authorities the president has to conduct cyber operations without explicit congressional authorization. The question isn't clear. Representative Langevin, Democrat of Rhode Island, is the most recent member to call for an accounting, but he's not asking for a declaration of war either. Just proper constitutional oversight, and what counts as such oversight is always a matter for interbranch wrangling. Representative Langevin has offered an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Bill. If it sticks, the bill would give the administration 30 days to fork over copies of all of the national security presidential memoranda concerning Defense Department operations in cyberspace. Presumably, that means offensive operations, which is where the dispute lies. U.S. intelligence community officials briefed Congress this week on potential threats to the 2020 elections. Their consensus was that, of course, there's a risk of interference in the upcoming elections with unspecified active threats in the offing. The briefings themselves were classified, but their upshot seems fairly clear from press reports. The threat foremost in the collective congressional mind is Russia. The intelligence officials are said to have addressed both threats and the measures being taken at the federal level to counter those threats. The Federal Election Commission has decided in this regard that political campaigns may legitimately accept cybersecurity services from vendors at a discount or even for free. The concern had been that such offers might constitute an illegal in-kind contribution, but the FEC says no, it doesn't, at least provided the vendors offer comparable services under similar conditions to other non-political not-for-profits. Among the effects of Baltimore's ransomware incident, the Baltimore Sun reports, will be very large water bills, as the city slowly brings its billing systems back online. Residents are told they'll receive a bill covering three or more months. Smart money is on more. Your water tab will be a whopping big one, Charm City, which is what happens when a municipal government throws the dice on security and craps out. Finally, there are renewed warnings this week about the possible return of WannaCry. But WannaCry is no problem anymore, right? I mean, it hit two years ago. After all, the eternal blue vulnerability it exploited to spread was patched a long time ago, right? Well, yes, and the malware, as it was, would affect only unpatched systems. Unfortunately, there remain an awful lot of unpatched systems out there, Recent Shodan searches estimate that the number of unpatched endpoints in the U.S. alone is running as high as 400,000. So let's say you're among the great unpatched. 
Please patch. If not for your own sake, do it for the rest of us. Herd immunity wants you. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Mike Benjamin. He's Senior Director of Threat Research at CenturyLink's Black Lotus Labs. Uh, Mike, it's great to have you back. I wanted to touch base with you today about DNS tunneling and hoping that uh, you could describe to us, first of all, what it is and why folks are choosing to use it. Yeah, thanks, Dave. So we all know DNS. We, you know, every computer uses it to resolve host names, to IPs, and find mail servers and all this other stuff in our environments, whether it be our house or business. And so many of us don't think much about it being there. Many folks don't even restrict to what can query what through their mm. environments. However, you'll find environments that allow DNS through, but don't allow any other services out or in. In many cases, they're content filtering and, and man-in-the-middle proxying HTTP traffic, but letting DNS through. And so that's a, that's a dangerous scenario because that allows someone mm. to send arbitrary traffic. And, and you might think it's DNS. How can it be arbitrary? But the question asked of the DNS server is provided by the user or the host. And so mm -hmm. DNS tunneling is a situation where the host name that they look up can contain encoded characters. You think about basic binary encoding with Base64, Base64 messages can be split up into host names, run thousands of queries, and if you control the server that's authoritative for that question, you've now successfully sent data through an environment where you should not be able to send data. And so it's very hmm. common attack that we see for, for a, a pen tester group coming into an environment to show why DNS should be locked down. But we also see it used for exfiltration of data by more sophisticated actors. And uh, it can be pretty loud inside an environment. 
Now, what is the rationale for why folks would leave DNS accessible when they'd be filtering other things? They're not thinking of it as an attack vector. That That's the most simple mm. example. Um, the, the other is that when they host authoritative zones inside a business, you'll find many businesses have a sort of private zone for their internal data centers, their internal host name resolution. They often don't think about the fact that those are recursive resolvers to the open internet. And so they may be locking down the name lookup to just that handful of hosts. Those things, because the very nature of DNS tunneling, they don't ask the same question. They're not cached questions. And so therefore, if I break my base 64 message into 10,000 queries, all 10,000 can make it through to the authoritative server and I can still succeed. So fully locking it down can be a difficult thing to do. Now, when folks are trying to hide data within these uh, DNS queries, how are they going about doing that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I've said now twice that base 64 is a, a simple uh, way to do it. However, most folks will know that you can decode a base 64 message. So they will then XOR it. They will then even encrypt it. And so anything that can get it through to a host name resolvable set of characters is viable. And any obfuscation, encryption, any other methodology can allow that to happen. And so it, while it might be very easy to go grab a group of data and, and try to brute force it with some simple base 64 and XOR decoding, the encrypted messages can be far more difficult. And so there is, uh, you think about encryption methodologies, it's not a very difficult thing to do. So pretty low threshold for fully obfuscating what's going on inside that payload. And in terms of mitigation, what are your recommendations there? Well, the, the first is logging. You know, you'll find that uh, as a security community, we all talk about protection and then monitoring. So we need to monitor what's going on inside of DNS servers. The nice thing about DNS tunneling is it tends to be very loud. So I mentioned that the actor needs to control the authoritative name server. And so in a typical attack here, what you'll find is that there'll be tens of thousands of queries all to one domain. That should stand out as an anomaly in those log sets. You'll also find often that the domain that's utilized tends to be a newly registered domain or something that at least has a very low volume in a baseline. And so simple statistic anomalies on domain lookups can immediately make these sort of attacks jump to the top of the list. All right. Well, interesting information. Mike Benjamin, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Martha Saunders. She's the president of University of West Florida, a public institution with nearly 13,000 students. They've made significant investments in their cybersecurity programs and have been named a National Center of Academic Excellence in Cyber Defense Education by the NSA and the Department of Homeland Security. We're in Pensacola, 
right on the Gulf, uh, about 20 miles from the Alabama line, so in the panhandle. We have about 13,000 students by national standards that would make us midsize. By Florida standards, we're kind of on the small side. Our part of Florida, there's very strong military influence here. And uh, one of the reasons cybersecurity has hit so fast and so hard for our university is partly because of that connection. And so what part does cybersecurity play with UWF? We started our Center for Cybersecurity really not even five years ago. Uh, We are always tuned in to workforce needs, uh, what we need to be doing next. We realized that that was certainly a growing area and uh, with lots of demand and lots of opportunities. So we started the center not quite sure which direction we were going to go and quickly took hold here. We got our CAE designation in uh, you know record time, and we are now one of the eight CAE regional resource centers in the nation, and we serve uh, the Southeast in that capacity. We partner a lot with the state. We partner with uh, industry. Uh, we partner with other universities as well to do a number of things. Uh, we train students. We have the only CAE-designated Bachelor of Science in Cybersecurity in the state. Uh, And we also offer, uh, will soon offer, a Master of Science in Cybersecurity. But the the niche that has really been uh, very compelling and high demand for us is to find ways to upskill and reskill individuals and organizations for cybersecurity jobs. We all know that there is a high demand. There are a lot of of jobs waiting to be filled. And we can't just go raid each other's uh, stables for Hmm. workforce. Uh, There's just too much demand. And so it became very clear that there were great opportunities to upskill existing workforce and reskill in order. And we're doing that with the state uh, and doing an awful lot of training in that way. So what are the unique needs and demands of folks who are coming to you who may be in a mid-career change uh, or or are looking um, to go after cybersecurity careers and and may not be, you know, right out of high school? I think it's the challenge is... uh making the right connection for them. People come into this area from a lot of different directions, a lot of different paths. Uh, It is highly multidisciplinary. So we could have someone uh, coming from a a political science background that would find a perfect niche, but we have to match their existing skills to to the job demand. And that's uh, labor intensive. It requires uh, good counseling and good coaching. How does a university like yours keep pace with the velocity of change in cybersecurity? It is moving fast, and we stay connected, and we listen. One of the advantages of a university like ours is that we are quite agile. We can move responsibly. We have advisory committees uh, that come in from industry and say, all right, uh, I know we told you last week your students need to be learning A, B, and C. All right, now it's D, E, and F. How quickly can you adapt? And we can move very, very quickly. 
So that, I think that has been a good opportunity for us in that we listen and we can respond uh, readily. And what do you see as the future of, uh, of education in cybersecurity? What's on your horizon? I think that you know, cyber, like anything else, as we know it today, will evolve and change. Uh, our job uh, at a university is to be ahead of the change to be ready to adapt for that change. And uh, there certainly are plenty of challenges out there. Hiring uh, qualified faculty is a challenge that uh, I'm sure many universities face. Also, um, getting the proper security clearances for our students so that they are ready to go straight into a job has been uh, an interesting challenge as well. And, and what is your advice uh, for that person who thinks that cybersecurity is something they want to explore and they want to start shopping around for a university like yours? Uh, any tips for things they should be looking for? You know, I think it is such a diverse field now. Uh, I would certainly advise them start looking around, do your, your searches, see what each university offers, what credentialing. Uh, a certain industry may offer. One of the areas that I think is is greatly uh, in, in need are small businesses. The same stresses are there, but how do you prepare small businesses for the challenges and the threats uh, of uh, security challenges? So I think it, a student would also want to think about the industry that may interest them. Maybe they're interested in healthcare and that what kind of challenges, cybersecurity challenges might exist there. And think about where they want to live, what industry they might want to serve, and back up from there. Plenty hmm. of opportunities for them. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting insight. I, I think um, it makes me wonder, uh, at a facility like yours, an institution like yours, um, is there are there opportunities on campus where if someone has an interest in healthcare and cybersecurity that those are things they can explore simultaneously? Yes, uh, and we do that again through our our Center for Cybersecurity. We have people on hand to counsel the students and say, why don't you, you know, here's here are the skill set you're bringing to us. Uh, here are some directions that you might want to go. Uh, that it, again requires. Uh, it is labor intensive. It requires um, making sure that we are listening equally to the industry and what they're telling us and then to our students and what their needs are. That's Martha Saunders. She's president at University of West Florida. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 